Hello, everybody. This is Sam Jacobs. You're listening to the Sales Hacker Podcast. I am the founder of the Revenue Collective, which is the association, the exclusive community for commercial executives at growth companies. As I'm sure at this point you know, we're officially in six cities, Boston, Denver, Toronto, London, Amsterdam, New York, but we're actually increasingly accepting members from other cities as remote members uh, while we develop the groups and the communities in those cities. So for example, Kyle Lacey, VP of Marketing at Lessonly, uh, just joined and he's based in Indianapolis. And until we have an Indianapolis chapter, Kyle's gonna be in our group. So that's what I do. But most importantly, we've got a show today for you. And we've got Dan Fougere on the show. Dan is the Chief Revenue Officer of Datadog. Datadog is well north of $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Dan hinted that things are going so well that maybe there's a, a good event in the future for them this year, maybe like an IPO, but we'll see. But Dan's got you know over 20 years of sales experience and specifically has insights on sales leadership, which I think is super important because there's a big difference between just individual execution and how. How are you a great leader? What does it mean to be a great leader? Not just a great manager, but a great leader. So I think it's a really, really good show. Uh, now, before we get to the show, of course, what we want to do is thank our sponsors. The first is Chorus.ai, the leading conversation intelligence platform for high growth sales teams. Chorus records, transcribes, analyzes business conversations in real time to coach reps on how to become top performers. It also is a powerful mechanism to relay feedback directly to the product team and the engineering team because they can hear from the actual voice of the customer. So with Chorus.ai, more apps hit quota, new hires ramp faster, leaders become better coaches, and everyone in the organization can collaborate over the actual voice of the customer. Check out Chorus.ai forward slash sales hacker to see what they're up to. Our second sponsor is Outreach, that's Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports reps by enabling them to humanize communications at scale, from automating soul-sucking manual work that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best, Outreach has your back. Now coming up in March, we're running Unleash 2019, it's now March when you're hearing this. Really, what we're talking about is next week. Next week, this is going to be, uh, hopefully you've got your tickets at this point, but if you don't, Unleash is happening March 10th through 12th in San Diego. Listeners of the pod get $100 off just for entering the code SHPOD. Hop over to unleash.outreach.io and use the code SHPOD to save $100 off your ticket. I'm going to be there and it's going to be amazing. And without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Dan Fougere. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs. Welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We've got an exceptional show for you today. We've got Dan Fougere on the show. He is the Chief Revenue Officer for Datadog. So let me quickly give you Dan's bio. He's responsible for Datadog's global sales strategy and execution. He's been doing software sales for 20 years at both public and pre-IPO software companies. Before Datadog, he was global and America's head of sales at Medallia which is the leading customer experience management company, very well-known company, very big company. In his five years at Medallia, Dan helped design and execute a go-to-market approach that increased annual revenue by 10x and grew the sales organization from seven people to 300. Before that, he's held leadership positions at BMC, Blade Logic, and Actuate, and he holds a degree in mechanical engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, or RPI. Dan, welcome to the show. Sam, great to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time <laughs> Uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Well, welcome to the warm embrace of the Sales Hacker Podcast. So we we want to get to know you a little bit before we dive into some of the areas where where we think you're an expert. So your title is Chief Revenue Officer. The company is Datadog. Tell us what is Datadog? What does Datadog do? Sure. Datadog is a SaaS software company, the leading platform for monitoring and analytics for today's modern infrastructure. Public cloud, private cloud, containers, microservices, serverless, Kubernetes, orchestration, you name it. All the cool new technology that's driving cloud-first innovators like Airbnb, Shopify, Twilio, and Hulu, and leading traditional companies making the cloud migration like Capital One, Verizon, HSBC, and USAA all use Datadog to make sure their infrastructure and applications are optimized so they can fix issues before they impact the customer. Datadog is the only solution that brings together infrastructure, application monitoring, and log management all into one application. We can dramatically reduce the amount of effort required to set up uh, monitoring and also uh, help companies make the moves to the cloud faster. Wow. Okay. It's, and it, from what I know of the company, you guys have been growing like gangbusters. So, you know, rough ARR range, it's fine if it's confidential. You sound like you might be pre-IPO. So what are the numbers that you can share with us that give us a sense of the size and the growth rate? Yeah, we're in a uh, spot we can't share too much, but we can say we're in the hundreds of millions and we're still doubling year over year. Damn. Okay. So you're, you are selling with the market, it sounds like. So tell us about your, your team. Uh, how big is your team and what are the different functions? What are your responsibilities? Across all the sales type functions, we've got uh, well over 300 people. We have an enterprise team that goes after the biggest accounts in the world. And uh, we've got a commercial team that goes after accounts that are kind of more the typically like the born in the cloud co uh, companies, the smaller startups. Uh, you know, one of the cool things about Datadog is, you know, we've got awesome customers. <laughs> These are people who are really like driving amazing change in the industry. And they're just like the thought leaders, creative, super smart. And a lot of the startups just, I mean, that's who we built the company around. And they helped push us to be able to handle all the new cool stuff. And so one of the things that's great about the company is one of the things that attracted me to Datadog is the ability to execute on innovation, just like nonstop innovation. And we're, and we're pushed to do that by our customers. So the commercial team goes after these smaller startup companies who just continually make us come up with new you know, capabilities. At the same time, these bigger companies on the enterprise side they push us for scalability, for like we've got some some of our customers in production for highly regulated industries are monitoring over 65,000 servers in just at that one customer. And so at the same time, one of the things that is pretty interesting about a lot of these new SaaS companies is, and Datadog is one of them, is that a lot of the growth can become organic. And so once some of these smaller companies become customers, we leverage our customer success team to not only make sure they're leveraging uh, everything that, the, that Datadog has to offer, but also to help upsell uh, over time as well. So we've got an amazing customer success team in addition to the enterprise and commercial team. And I think we're seeing kind of these, these functions evolve over time as the buying model changes. We've also got a really just a really kick-ass SE team. And one of the things we've done that's kind of interesting is Instead of going, now we do have a lot of people who are traditional SEs, but again, trying to match, map to our customers' needs, we're hiring people who are like developers and we're 
teaching them how uh, the sales stuff. And because the cloud stuff, the open source and the cloud and everything is so new that, and if you don't have it, we're not going to be able to bring as much value to the customer. So we're, we're going to kind of over-index on their knowledge of the cloud space and then teach them uh, the sales stuff. Do you have um, do you have SDRs and ADR supporting the enterprise and commercial teams? I'm just curious if you can give us some some detail on some of the ratios, the number of SEs to reps, the number of SDRs to reps, and is I would imagine enterprise includes or is maybe exclusively field sales people out in the market in the geography where their customers are. That's right. So yes, we do have SDRs, and I saw you know one of your questions uh, was uh, hey should SDRs report to marketing or sales and. For me, you know, the SDRs are a core part of the sales organization. We really uh, have, we prioritize something that we'll call PG or pipeline generation. And to break into some of these enterprise accounts, it's going to take, you know, a multi-pronged approach. And so, you know, the SDRs are a core part of the enterprise team. We're striving for like a three to one ratio of AEs or account execs to SDRs for the enterprise. And then, but we also have great teaming on the commercial side between the SDRs as well. And, um, and so there, I think we're probably in a similar type of, um, of a ratio. And, uh, you know, those folks are trying to go after lots of different companies. And so teaming up certainly helps. Another thing that's super cool about what's been happening here over the past couple of years is we've really been able to kind of build, had the SDRs become kind of the farm team for uh, the commercial uh, team. And so after spending something like a year or so honing their skills, getting all the training in the SDR role, we're having great success promoting those folks to the commercial AE role. And they're having just incredible, like their, their, their ramp time is really short and their productivity is, is excellent. And so we're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of value out of that too. And it's also an exciting part of when we're recruiting those people to know that it's not just like a promise that we're going to promote people, but it's actually part of our, our go-to-market. Do you start giving SDRs pipeline or deals to close before they're promoted to accelerate their ramp? Or is it uh, there's a hard line and past that hard line of promotion, that's when they need to build their own pipeline? Yeah, we haven't done that yet. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting idea. I think as we evolve and you know, maybe that's something we, we could end up doing. And I know that as I've gotten promoted in the past, that's been a key aspect of it is to start to give the person a little more responsibility. So I'm not saying we won't do it. We just haven't gotten there yet. Understood. So let's let's talk about your background. You know, one of the qualities that we want to talk about in today's show is really the co- these concepts of leadership and how to be a great leader. And one of the ways that we figure that out is by understanding, you know, where you come from. So tell us a little bit about sort of where you came from. How did you get into sales and walk us through the journey that resulted in you being CRO at Datadog and and some of your success at Medallia? You bet. So it's a uh... You know, it's an interesting story. My dad was a cop in New York City. Uh, he was actually like an undercover street crime detective. So kind of like, you know, Serpico or something like that, you know, <laughs> you know the movies from the 70s. Of course. So, so everybody I knew was kind of like firemen or cops or something like that. And then when I was 13, we moved to the country. Like I was working on farms. There was no sidewalks. Longer story about how that happened. But, I, the, you know, longer story shorter, I didn't know any... I didn't even know what a business person was. I didn't know what a salesperson was. And I was uh, in school and I was, but we didn't have a lot of money. And I was reading the U.S. News and World Report. 
and it said top earning degrees, and they were all engineering degrees. And I happened to be good at math and science, and so I went to engineering school, and I happened to use this software for, for design. I did mechanical engineering, and the software was pretty cool. It was 3D modeling software, CAD CAM, and I ended up getting a job partly through my fraternity brothers, partly because I knew this software, and the software is called Pro Engineer, and it was made by a company called Parametric Technology, or PTC. And I just learned more about that company, and I was just blown away. It was like everybody was like young and smart and energetic, and, and I just uh, really wanted to be part of what they were doing. So I joined that company as a pre-sales engineer. And that was when I met my first salespeople. And these were people who were 28 years old, and they were having a lot of success, or 25, some of them. And I just thought, hey, you know, it seems like that seems more like what I should be doing. So I ended up becoming a rep at PTC. And another thing is I, my first job at PTC, I moved, I, my first job out of school, I did real engineering. I did that in Michigan. Then I moved to Silicon Valley to go to work at PTC as, a, as an uh, engineer. Then I moved to Texas, to Dallas, to be a rep at PTC. And I just got amazing training. And I just, uh, the leaders at PTC is a guy named Steve Walski, who was the CEO there. This guy, John McMahon, who was the head of sales. They made a big impression on me around their investment in me and all the other salespeople where there was, it was an environment of high accountability, but amazing enablement, amazing training. And they helped kind of like take what to me was like an amorphous, you know, structureless thing about like sales and how people make decisions to buy things and turned it into more of a science. And so I got some great training there and I was able to then go, but I wanted to, I always wanted to go to one of these startups. I, whether it was like Steve Jobs or whatever kind of pictures I had in my mind. And when I was out in Silicon Valley, that's when Netscape happened and all that. So I just wanted to be part of some kind of Silicon Valley thing. And I happened to be the second choice for a rep job for a company called Actuate, which at the time was probably doing about $15 million a year, but was in like the red herring, you know, top 100, you know, startups. And anyway, fortunately, the first choice guy didn't take the job. And I, I told the, the VP, if she didn't pick me, I was going to call all of her customers and tell them that I was the rep anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. She gave me the job and I took all that PTC training with this great territory and this cool new technology. And I rode that world, that worldwide web thing for a few years. I happened to be uh, the number one rep, I think actually, uh, you know, at, when I left in the, in the history of the company and they moved me to New York as a, I, I got to sell to all the financial services companies. And that's when I started to do to do big deals. But I knew I, I met my wife and I wanted to take on more. And so I ended up uh, getting a, a leadership job. My first leadership job was, and, I, and they happened to move me to London. So I got some international experience. Um, I got to start to learn how to do leadership. It was a good couple of years in London at Actuate, but I could tell that the company maybe was, you know, the best days were behind them and I wanted to learn more. And so I just, I just knew I, I could get better. And some of my friends, uh, like Carlos Delatore, who I had worked for and worked with, who uh, just was the CRO at MongoDB when they went public, he, was, he said, hey, you know, there's some guys going over to Blade Logic. John McMahon was the VP of sales there. And I, I just wanted to work closely with John, and, uh, which you know, isn't easy because uh, the, the man is uh, amazing and intense. But, man, I learned a lot. Plus, I also... That experience, you know, it was like uh, Carlos Delatore, Scott Davis, who was the head of sales 
at uh, Medallia, Jeremy Duggan, who is the head of sales at uh, for a leader in EMEA for AppDynamics, Adam Ahrens, who's the CRO at Okta. Uh, I'm forgetting a whole bunch of people, but they're all Andy Byron, who's the CRO at Cyber Reason. We all were sitting around this table in my first leadership meeting, and I was just blown away by the talent. And I think we all pushed each other, and we all really saw like amazing talent in each other. And I, I that made such a big impact on me that I just knew that. I want to be around people like that. I want to push myself hard. I want to get better in my life by getting better in my work and just by uh, really, you know, seeing what, I, what I'm capable of. And so that was a great run at Blade Logic. We got, we went public. Uh, we went public, public at Actuate too. And then uh, we, um, you know, got bought by BMC and David Achirio, who's now the, CEO, the, the CEO at MongoDB. Dave was the founder at uh, Blade Logic. And he became president at BMC. So we all stayed there. Uh, and I learned a lot, actually, because even though I kind of had probably, you know, not as favorable view of big companies before, because I kind of thought of startups as the real deal, the big companies, there's a lot to learn there, too. So I learned a lot about sales ops. I learned a lot about kind of the financial aspect of running a software company, meeting with CIOs, that kind of doing really big deals, like $10 million plus dollar deals. Uh, but it was time for me to go to another startup. And Steve Walski, who was the founding CEO of PTC, was on the board of this company, Medallia. And there was also um, Doug Leone, who was the head of Sequoia at that time, who I knew a little bit. They were both on the board of this company, Medallia. I just was really inspired by the founders. They you know, were really doing something cool with around customer experience. So I went there, and Scott Davis and I went there around the same time. And uh, we were employed, you know, members number seven and eight of the sales team when we joined. When we left five years later, there was over 300 people on the team doing about 300 million a year and uh, did some deals around 20 million or so. So that was great. But, you know, I, it just wasn't going to work out exactly the way I wanted. And so it was time for a change. And I've learned a few things along the way. And one of the things was I wanted to go someplace where product innovation was absolutely paramount. And I could see that the people were passionate about building a great company and really passionate about delivering awesome, awesome technology to customers and, and building. And so I, when I met the founders at Datadog, I was living in Silicon Valley. And I just thought it took me five years to convince my wife to move to Silicon Valley. I got three small kids. But as I called up my wife, I said, I think that we might need to move back to New York because I think Datadog is special. So that was uh, you know, about two and a half years ago. And uh, I have to say, like, it's just like gone beyond my uh, wildest dreams. And the people are amazing to work with. And we're doing awesome things for our customers. And we're riding this whole wave of the cloud. Everybody's moving to uh, the cloud for infrastructure. So hopefully we got to, I get to add another exit at some point onto uh, my, uh, my career list. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. That's uh, that's an incredible journey, uh, Dan. And and uh, I didn't realize for some reason that you're in New York. So that's great because I'm I'm right now in New York, and I'll make sure that we connect in person at some point. <laughs> exactly. But so you know, over I guess you've been doing this since for you know well over 20 years. And one of the things you talked about is this concept of a repeatable leadership system from some of the people that you just mentioned as you went through the career, John McMahon and Steve Walski. So talk to us, what is a repeatable leadership system and how does it inform your career and your choices and the kind of senior executive that you've become? I'd say I learned a bunch from the PTC lineage and then I learned a bunch at my last place too. And and that one, that last place was a little bit more maybe like 
EQ, modernizing it. And so number one for me is create a collaborative, safe environment for constant learning. Really focus on enablement, but also like have respect for people and have empathy and have a growth mindset. And so there's this woman, Carolyn Dweck, she wrote this book, Growth Mindset, where you know, I think what happens for a lot of people is they build up these protective walls based on their previous achievements. And that actually inhibits you really getting to that next level. And I think, um, especially as a leader, once you get beyond, hey, you know, as a rep, you're going to learn how to do a deal. And as a leader, you're going to learn how to hire a rep. But eventually you learn these kind of like subject matter expertise skills. And then it becomes about you and your ability to grow and how, how you in, in, engage with people and how they feel when they engage with you. And so I, I want to make sure that that's a part of how we build great leaders here and how we also make sure that salespeople, even though we're pushing them really hard, that they feel respected and they feel like, you know, we're treating them the, the right way with, with like, you know, support while we push them hard. Is there an evolution personally that you've gone through? I mean, it sounds, it sounds really important what you just said. How are, are there specific personal journeys that you're comfortable sharing about how you've grown or evolved over the course of your leadership career? Yeah, I'd say like, you know, going through a couple of tough times, you know, tough times in my life previous to that, to my sales career was one thing, but just situations when you're having like a tough time and you realize, holy cow. I'm not, I'm not able to achieve right now at the level I want to. And you can see that that's like a, that's like a moment in time for somebody who is talented and driven and determined. And how do you, how do you, how can you be understanding of them there and then give them some support? Cause sometimes what people need is not like more of a beating they need some, like, you know, they need a lifeline, right? They need you to reach out and see and see what they need, and it's easy to kind of uh, write them off as saying, "Hey, that person's no good." But it's it's a little harder, and but more valuable, I think, to see like what what is this person capable capable of? What do they need right now, and how can I try to get that to them? Because what I've seen is that people can change, right? People can you know go from a place where they're not achieving as mu- as well as they want to to a place where they can, but it takes a little bit of extra work, and it takes some empathy and understanding. At the same time, you got to be realistic. And if they don't have the skill or the will, then, you know, you got you to make a change. And the other thing I'd say there is like even having respect for that person so that it, it doesn't, it has no bearing on them as their, like their value as a human, right? It, this is, there might be another job out there at another company that's actually where they should be doing. I mean, so don't uh, send them off into some other, some other place with a bad, with bad taste in their mouth. So if you can do it. Is that a good answer or what do you think? (laughs) I think it's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think, um, I mean, personally for me, it's exact, you're exactly right. You build up these walls partially because you're hired to do a certain job and the idea that you can be vulnerable and say, I actually, you know, that this particular thing, I don't have a lot of experience with. There's a lot of hesitation to express that because you're worried that, you know, your executive peers might, might judge you in some way. Sam, that is, that's a brilliant insight right there. So there's this woman, Brene Brown, she's written a book. I saw her speak and she talks about vulnerability as part of leadership. And to me, like, you know, when I look at what I learned through that PTC lineage, I learned so many great fundamentals like driving pipeline generation, how to recruit constant qualification. All those things are absolutely core and fundamental to, to creating and driving a high performance sales organization. 
but also these other parts, these other EQ parts, you know, empathy, vulnerability. I think if you combine all that together, then you get the optimal formula. Yeah, I, I hope so. To your point, like change is very hard. Um, one of the things that, you know, that you've got a big focus on pipeline generation, walk us through some of your philosophies there, just because, you know, I think we're on the same page. You can't make any money if you don't have any pipelines. So what are your tenants? What are your principles when it comes to building pipeline uh, for your sales work? Yeah. So um, number one, just make sure it's clearly stated to everybody that this is, this is important, right? This is something that we all do. A mistake I think a lot of salespeople make is they think that, oh, yeah, uh, cold calling is for when I was an SDR, when I was 22. It's not. It's, cold calling is not dead, um, and it's not the sole responsibility of marketing or SDRs. It's great to have leads for marketing. It's great to have SDRs doing the work. But to be like, you know, in baseball, they call it a five-tool player, right, where you can, you can run fast, you can hit for average, hit for power, field, it's a throw. And same thing, I think, as a sales professional, you want to make sure you continually work on your skills, and you've got to take responsibility for creating pipeline. And so one thing about that is first to help everybody see what's working. So by creating that collaborative, safe environment for constant learning, people are going to share, encourage sharing of what's working, sharing the emails that work, the techniques, what time, you know, what's, what, what do people not like, and don't do more, don't do that. And so... If everybody has that mindset and if you have this, you know, collaboration environment and you've also got the enablement going, then it's like you constantly just get a little bit better every day. And it also is better for customers too, because you're not just like throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and hoping that it sticks. You're really refining your message and your techniques so that when you do engage with a customer, you're having valuable interactions and valuable engagement. Another thing as far as like from a management perspective is to actually track pipeline generation. So we actually delineate between pipeline that's been generated through outbound efforts and pipeline that is generated through inbound leads or SDRs. So that way we can get a more accurate view of the truth. And we can also help people get better who maybe are falling down in those areas and change some of the enablement and training that we're doing. Do you have a do you have an expectation on the percent of pipeline that an individual rep is supposed to generate on their own behalf versus coming from marketing or from SDRs? Well, I think what we want to do is people are coming to Datadog and to whatever team I'm running to not just make their number. They're coming here to collect it, right? And so if we say, hey, we've got like a three-to-one ratio, for example, from opportunity creation to close, then what we want to do is say, okay, well, we need to create 3x quota in pipeline to be able to hit our number. And then what we want to do is say, well, what do you really want to achieve? And so if you want to get to 200% of your number... And fortunately for uh, the enterprise folks on our team last year, 60% of the folks made their number and 50% actually hit 200% of their number. You know, then, then wow. I need this much quota, I mean, this much pipeline. And so that should be the goal is kind of like working backwards from there and doing the math about how much money do you want to make? What's the deal close ratio? What's the average sale price? How many opportunities do I need to create? during like a week or a month or a quarter, and then start to drive it that way. Here's a debate that, that uh, me and some other folks have been having within some of my, my circles, which is the notion of forecasting. And on the commercial side, 
some folks are advocating for weighted probability. Basically, you know, the way I know what my number is going to be is this many deals at this stage at times 40% because that's the close rate at that stage. The other folks that are working on really big enterprise deals are saying weighted probability forecasting doesn't really work. And it really comes down to a rigorous qualification methodology like a medic or something where you can either commit the deal or not. And it's really more binary than that. Do you have a perspective given that you've worked on so many different kinds of deals up from the $20 million deals all the way down to the couple thousand dollar deals? 100%. Yeah. Some of our deals here are even like the guys in, at Silicon Valley on the show, you know, in a startup garage with two, two people and a couple servers. So we got the whole gamut here. Personally, as far as like enterprise deals, that has to be what, we, what I would call absolute forecasting. We use medic and we use the three whys. Why should I do anything? Why should it be data dog? And why now? And that's our that's medic and that is our template for how we forecast deals. And everybody needs to use that and everybody has to put their judgment on every deal. And that way, we when we roll up a forecast, we have human judgment put on every single deal. And we also require, you know, some kind of notes, like be able to communicate to me. So we use Obviously, I mean, everybody uses Salesforce as the back end. We use Clary for managers to be able to make quick changes and be able to look through the forecast. And then we're using Tableau to do analytics as well. And so, but that gives us what we would call an absolute forecast for the enterprise, but then also for bigger deals for commercial, because our commercial team is amazing. I have to say, like, you know, my personal background has been primarily enterprise before. Datadog. And I just, I love the commercial folks here. I love the, the energy and we've got just amazing talent. And, um, you know, I've learned from them as well. And so, but for the bigger deals, I asked them over some certain amount to also put their absolute forecast and judgment on all the deals. At the same time, some of these deals are very transactional. Some of them might buy it on a credit card and we're not putting judgment on those deals. And then what we do is we actually then do some analytics on the forecast so that we have the absolute forecast. We also have not just weighted, but actually we use some kind of machine learning to help predict based on previous quarters. And we also do a weighted forecast, which we continually um, kind of tweak based on what's happened recently. So we've got three different perspectives, and then we try to triangulate in on the truth. And we've actually, on a pretty significant number last quarter, we missed it by like like 0.5% or something. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so the past few quarters, we've been super accurate with this. It takes a lot of work, but at the same time, one thing I definitely have learned from our CEO, Olivia here, is sometimes automation is not the best thing because by having to dig into the numbers and having to dig into the details and do things somewhat manually, you're going to get a lot more familiar with that deal. And that's going to force you every single time I dig into a deal, I'm going to see something where I think, hmm, this is the question, this is the risk, this is the red flag, we want to do something, and it forces the team to go take action and improve strategy on deals. So I think that a combination of all that is important, and you don't want to do too much automation. That's amazing, and uh, and triangulation does sound like like the right approach. And so the the point five percent you mean you missed from your from the forecast that you had predicted. Obviously, you I'm sure you still beat the board number confirming that. Yeah, yes, yes, we did. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, and just barely. I mean, we almost were exactly accurate for the past couple quarters. Wow. So you always want to do more, but beat the board plan, and also we're very accurate with the forecast. So you know, we're always trying to get better, and you know, things could always change, but so far so good. 
Do you align the, the sales org around the actual board number, or is it like all of the reps quotas add up to 120% of the manager's quotas, which add up to 120% of your quota, which adds up to 120% of the board goal so that you've built in layers and layers and layers of protection or, or is it more cut and dry from your perspective? I was just having this conversation with our CEO and you know, the world that I don't think you want to live in as a leader is what we might more call metal on metal, right? Where everybody has to do exactly their number for you to make your number. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a, that's a painful world to have to uh, try to make that happen. And the higher up you go, the more pain can be um, felt because the significance of missing is so, so much more dramatic, right? And so, like, if I miss, the company misses and we can't do that. So we try to do more of what you described there, where there's going to be some, some buffer at each level to make sure that it doesn't have to be 100% everybody makes all, makes their number just for the leader to make their number. Yeah. The one issue I've seen if you put in too much protection, which is very interesting, is is the individual reps or even like the frontline managers walking around after a quarter or a month or a year, hanging their head a little bit and saying, we really, we really fucked up. And meanwhile, the CEO is saying, yeah, no, we did pretty good. We're excited about it. And that distant, that difference, that dissonance between sort of the morale and the energy at the very top level where you've built in so much protection that you've actually beat your board number, but the individual people on the ground floor are thinking that they've done a bad job. A hundred percent, man. You know, you, in, on, on the flip side, you know, if you uh, set the number too low, you know, there's issues there as well. So that's like a thing you just have to always try to be wary of and try to not because the other thing is you want the leaders to be in the boat with the salespeople, right? And so having too much protection is not a good thing either. What I will say is in situ you know, you know, it's kind of like every one of these like black and white answers, there's kind of then there's like the kind of graduate school answer in in the appendix. And you know, I think when you're building Right, which is what we've been doing. Because when I when I got here two years ago, we didn't have any salespeople outside of Boston, and we didn't have an enterprise team. And um, so now we've got you know a commercial team in Dublin. We've got enterprise and commercial people in you know Singapore and Hamburg and London and you name it. And so a lot of these are new territories. And we also made a big transition from when I got here. It was really all inbound responding to inbound leads and now we're primarily an outbound in addition to having a lot of inbound and so as you go through these changes you also need to you know take into consideration that you might need to make some manual tweaks to the systematic approach to quotas because you know breaking into new territories uh, and creating new teams also has you know kind of its own challenges when you um this this uh I might not have prepared you for this question but you're a smart guy so we'll we'll figure out what your answer is on the fly but when you think about the biggest mistake or series of mistakes that you see people in your situation that are the first time kind of quote unquote chief revenue officer so somebody maybe they've been a sales director or even a vp of sales but you know there've been layers above them and they're promoted into a role where they own they own the number for the company. What do you think the biggest mistakes most people in that position tend to make? There is a, there are a set of business books by a guy named Patrick Lencioni. And uh, <laughs> I got a lot out of it, you know, and I think it was the was it five dysfunctions of a team or something like that. That's it. And, yep, uh, that's it. His new one, The Advantage, is, uh, is yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah, it condenses all of that. the one I read more. And uh, he, talk, he talks about the concept of your first team. And one of the things that happens for somebody like with a background like me, 
you know, I was always just so super loyal to and uh, part of the sales team. And, you know, just like it's, you, these are your brothers and sisters who you, you know, fight battles with and you go to war with and you, you know, do have, have heroic adventures. Right. And, um, and so that loyalty is just super deep, but at the same time, as you become, you know, a higher level leader within an organization, your, your first team is no longer the sales team. Your first team are the other execs. And so CFO, general counsel, you know, CMO, CEO, like whoever the other kind of folks are on the operating team, executive team. And you need to make sure you have great relationships with those folks and that you're, consider, you're considering the best interest of the company and the best interest of your peers on your first team before you consider the best interest of the sales team. Now, you, don't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have to make massive compromises where, you know, you've done something negative to the sales team, but I think that's a big change for a lot of people, and that's going to help the, t- the company be able to achieve better because you don't want to over-index or over-emphasize the needs of the sales team at the expense of the rest of the company because that's going to do damage to the company. That's a, a great insight. One of the, we've got a few, a time for a few more questions. One of them is, you know, it always comes down to there's all these startups, there's a ton of capital out there that's being deployed into early stage companies. And people are trying to figure out how do I pick the right company? And this is something that I think you have an opinion on. So walk us through how do you evaluate? Because these, you know, VCs can, um, they, they have a portfolio. They make, you know, Doug Leone or anybody else, they make 20 bets or 30 bets. And over the course of their career, they've, you know, they've got investments or led the round on, on dozens sure. and dozens. But you yeah. and I, we, we only get to work at one place at a time. And uh, so how do, you, how do you make that, that decision? How do you pick the right company? Yeah, a great question. And uh, so far, I've been at five startups. One was a mistake and I got out of there in, in three months just because it took me three months to get a new job. But the other four have all become unicorns while I was there. Two have gone public. Last one is IPO ready. Uh, this one may have some good things happening this year. And so my hit rate is relatively good. And I think, a few, uh, but I've learned from some really smart people. And so whether I learned from Doug Leone, Steve Walski, David Achuria, these guys who have uh, an even better track record than me. And so one is like, is there a macro driver in the economy or in technology that is directly going to support your growth? So for Datadog, everybody's moving to the cloud, right? You can just see by AWS's amazing performance and Azure's amazing performance and companies like that. And so that's one thing, like that rising tide will raise all ships. That's one thing that you want to look for. Another thing is something like real technical differentiation. Like Datadog has something called tagging that underlies everything we do, so it allows us to work in the cloud. Something that's architectural, that's that's a defensible differentiator. And also, I think, but differentiators are fleeting. So also a proven ability to bring meaningful innovation to the market is important. Personally, it's got to be real SaaS, not like a, a, a company that's kind of, you know, doing what was on-premise software, kind of custom builds every time. That's, that's kind of like a little bit of a nuance, but something modern, tech, modern technology. Another thing that was important, that's always important for me, is are companies willing to pay a lot of money for it? You know, it's a lot easier to move the needle on dramatic growth for a company when somebody spends a million dollars versus going out and doing like, you know, hundreds of smaller deals, right? And so if what I've seen is like, even if one company or one or two companies are willing to pay a million dollars a year or more, 
then you probably have something that you can repeat. Um, and I also want to look for some impressive brands, right? Are companies that have a lot of governance in place picking the right technology, do they have they picked this, this company's technology? And then I want to see something. Is there some kind of repeatability in the sales cycle? Are they missing some things? Because what I think as a sales leader, what I look for is, are there some gaps that I can fill? Is this generally a healthy business, but they're missing an outbound sales motion, great sales people, an enterprise sales team, selling value, things like that, where I, I see, hey, they're doing well. But if they had those things, then we could really turbocharge this thing. And then I think, you know, another thing that's important to me is someone who really cares about the customer and makes it a priority in everything they do um, is building something that's lasting. That's kind of like what I look for. And that's what I saw at Datadog that really kind of hooked me when I met these guys. And I, the other thing that Steve Walski told me was like, don't go for the title. I think I see, I know, I know a bunch of folks who live in say Silicon Valley who keep going from like one startup to the next because they're trying to grab the brass ring and they, they love these titles Personally, whether it's like CRO or global galactic head of all things sales, <laughs> don't get impressed with the title. Go to the best company. If there's a, if there's a rocket ship, don't ask what seat. Just get on that that ship. Because what I can tell you is, like picking the right company, the the cream will rise to the top. And you, just because you go in with a big title doesn't mean it's going to be like the best company. And the other thing is like the crew that you're able to to roll with, right? The people who are like when I met the founders here, I knew that by working with them on a daily basis, they would they would make me get better because they're amazing, super talented, hard driving. And so go work with people who are going to push you and make you better. I love it. That's great insight. I have to ask, what's because it sounds like you've gone through a process of change over your career, what's the toughest piece of feedback that you've ever received? If you're comfortable sharing, we can remove, you know, some of the personal details or something, but just curious, like what, what's something, what's a piece of feedback that you've directly received that forced you to evolve? Sam, it's a long list. I we might need another podcast <laughs> for all the things I was not good at that I had to work on. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, as a former engineer, you know, like I was working on farms, I worked construction, I went to engineering school, you know, connecting with connecting with people and, you know, understanding how people make decisions. And, you know, I think that early on, it was pretty clear to people, hey, this guy understands the technology, he's passionate about it, but he wasn't really connecting. And so I mentioned Carlos Delatore, he actually uh, was my boss at the time, and he made me read this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People which is an oldie but goodie and every salesperson should read. And it basically talks about like how to connect with people. Right. And like, you know, the person's first, first name, their name is the sweetest music to their ears and you'll never win an argument. And people always look externally for rational rationale as to why they, they don't succeed and things like that. And so that was one where I really had, it was tough to hear but really like the most valuable feedback, you know, it's, uh, it's one of the, uh, you know, uh, things about the universe, right? The things that are most valuable are usually the toughest things to, 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 to take in. And so that was something, and I had another leader who's now a guy at MuleSoft, Terry Tripp. He told me, hey, because I think I was going in to meetings very early in my career and just starting to talk about the technology. And he's like, don't say anything about technology. Look at what's on the guy's desk see what he's into, understand, like, I want to know how many kids he has. I want to know what he, what he likes to do on the weekends, like, and just kind of like make it about connecting with people. So that was one early in my career that has paid off for me over time. I love it. 
You've mentioned, you know, a bunch of people that have influenced you. So we don't need you to, to repeat them. But some of the folks just for the listeners out there, Carlos De La Torre, John McMahon, Steve Walski, those are some of the CROs, CMOs, VPs of sales that, that you have particular respect for. Any coaches or consultants or people that you've worked with personally that you think we should be aware of if, if we want to get better? Absolutely. One other person I would put on that list is David Echiria, who's the CEO at MongoDB. Who, I mean, he picks a lot of winners and he's given me great coaching and advice over the years, much of which was not super easy to hear, but always super valuable. As far as like, uh, yeah, I've, you know, personally, I've, I just looked at like, Hey, I need to, I need a big team. Like I have two personal trainers. I have a jujitsu coach. I have a yoga instructor. You know, I've worked with psychologists over the years and then executive coaches also to me, like are super valuable because sometimes you can, really dig in and understand, I mean, not sometimes, every time, uh, dig in and just get like very personal around what baggage am I bringing to this situation and how do I go unpack that and how do I go deconstruct it and rebuild something that's better so I can get better results. And so I've worked with a company called the Handel Group and uh, Gaby Jordan is my coach and she's done an amazing job. And one of the things that we, you know, talk about is like how to have, the, you know, like your negative inner dialogue, right? Sometimes I tend personally, like a lot of people to go to like some extreme negative uh, situation in your mind about like, Hey, like this deal is going sideways. And then all of a sudden you're having like a, a very negative conversation internally. It doesn't serve you really well. And so how do you like recognize what's happening? How do you stop it? And then how do you go and have a more uh, positive and constructive way to do that so you can go problem solve? That's great advice. Dan, this has been a great conversation. If uh, folks are, I'm sure there there are people out there that are listening to you right now that have identified with what you've said and might want to might want to reach out to you. Maybe they want to work at Datadog, or maybe they just need a mentor. Are you open to listeners of the pod reaching out to you? And if so, what's your preferred method of communication? 100%. I would love it. I'm Dan at datadog.com, and you can catch me on LinkedIn too. Awesome. And it's Fougere. So uh, for those not in the know, F-O-U-G-E-R-E is how you pronounce your last name. Uh, It's how you spell your last name. So if you're looking for it on LinkedIn. Dan, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on the Sales Hacker Podcast. And we'll talk to you this Friday for Friday Fundamentals. Sam, thanks for having me. Great catching up and chatting with you. Awesome. Thank you. Hey everybody, Sam Jacobs. This is Sam's Corner, a really great interview with Dan Fougere, Chief Revenue Officer of Datadog and somebody that's been building companies for over 20 years. I think you mentioned he's worked at five startups and four of them have had some kind of event, whether it's been an IPO or an acquisition or, or uh, sometimes both <laughs> in the same in the same company. So he's got a tremendous amount of experience. And I think that one of the things that Dan focused on is is the the emotional the EQ the emotional quotient the the ability to understand the emotions and not just the IQ not just the intelligence not just the ability to forecast but the ability to understand how you affect other people you know there's a there's a phrase people don't re- remember what you say they remember how you make them feel and it's strange but at the as you go up as you become a senior executive one of the big mistakes i made was thinking that my job was to hit the number. That's my job. And, you know, doesn't matter what I need to do. My job is to represent my team and to hit the number and to be correct. And that's not true, actually. Your job isn't, as a senior executive, your job is partially to hit the number. But the main job, 
is to align with the executive team and to not create more work for the CEO. The way you create more work for the CEO is by getting in fights a lot. That's the way that you create work for managers is by having lots of disagreements that you're unable to resolve on your own or frankly, pissing people off. And so Dan rightly points out, if you read the, the Lencioni books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team or The Advantage, which is the newest one, your first team as an executive has to be your peer executives. It cannot be, you cannot just be an advocate for your people. That's a big challenge for a lot of first time managers because your instinct is that you are a defender of your people. You really love being loved. You know, you were promoted to be a manager. You love that you're the great boss, that you're the cool boss, that you really understand them and what they're going through and you identify with them and you're an advocate for them and you view peer interactions at the executive level almost in an adversarial way. And that is a surefire way to get fired. That is a surefire way to exit the organization because your job as an executive is to align and speak on behalf of the company. It is not just to advocate for the reps. It's not just to argue for a better comp plan. Sometimes you need to be the voice of the CFO back to the reps and tell them why the comp plan you've structured is the way it is, why you must get 12 months paid up front. You can't accept payment terms. You can't pay monthly. And I'm sorry about that, but that's what's good for the company. And so that's a really critical challenge as you grow and as you evolve in your, in your leadership career. And I would encourage you to really embrace that idea that as you grow higher, it's not just about being right. It's about your ability to interact and influence your peers. So that is my thought for the day for Sam's Corner. Now to check out show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, go to saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. Hopefully at this point, you've either nominated somebody for the Sales Hacker Top 50 Awards or you are uh, going to Unleash. Remember that the code for Unleash is SHPOD and you can do that at unleash.outreach.io. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, you know how to do that. But if you don't, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs. Although I've been a little dormant on Twitter recently because it was pissing me off every time I logged on. People are so angry on Twitter. So maybe better to find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.com slash the word in and then slash Sam F. Jacobs. We would love to hear from you. We do love to hear from you. We love the feedback. And then finally, thanks again to our sponsors for this episode, Chorus, the leading conversation intelligence platform, and Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. And I will see you next time.